This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Amen. Well, open your Bibles uh, this morning to the Gospel of Luke, and if you're new uh, today, we have been uh, walking through uh, Luke, and we're looking at various encounters that Jesus has with people in the Gospel of Luke. So between uh, now and Easter Sunday, um, each week we're going to be looking at different different encounters, interactions that Jesus has with people that reflect a different facet of who he is. And today we're going to talk about encountering his purpose. So we're going to be in the fifth chapter of Luke, and we started in chapter 5 last week, and we looked at verses 1 through 11, and today we're going to look at verses 12 through 32 in Luke chapter 5. So if you'll find that in your copy of God's Word, Luke 5 and verses 12 through 32, encountering his purpose. God's purpose is to conform us to the image of his son, to transform, to restore what is broken. We see that powerfully in this text today. Luke 5, and beginning with verse 12. Follow along. While he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. But the news about him spread even more, and large crowds would come together to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places and prayed. On one of those days, while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem, and the Lord's power to heal was in him. Just then some men came, carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your stretcher, and go home. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded and they were giving glory to God and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And this Levi is the man who becomes Matthew, the author of the first gospel. 
See, he saw this tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray together. Now, Father, as we come before uh, this text, we, we ask that by the power of your spirit that you would make it open up for us in a, in a fresh way, that you would, would, would help us to examine ourselves, help us not to think about how this applies to others, but what is it saying to us? And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would, would just bring conviction. And th these next few minutes are just a, a crucial time in our lives. It's a, a time when we've, we've come sort of away from, from our, the world, our everyday lives, and, and we, we come together in these moments to, uh, to, to feast on your word. And we need your word. We, we need what you have to say to us right now. And so we ask you to speak. Lord, help me just to get out of the way that your word and your word alone would be heard. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. John Patton was a Scottish missionary in the 1800s to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific. Now it's called the nation of, of Vanuatu. And before Patton brought the good news of Jesus to these people, they were completely in the dark spiritually. In fact, they were essentially a cannibalistic tribe. The missionaries that had attempted to bring the gospel to the, these islands before John Patton were immediately murdered and eaten. But by God's grace, Patton was able to survive even though for years he saw no visible fruit, saw just ever-present danger and threats upon his life, endured the heartache of losing his wife and, uh, and an infant to disease. But after several years... The, the seeds of the gospel that had been lovingly and patiently sown among these people, they began to germinate. And eventually, virtually the entire tribe came to Christ. And one of the lives that was gloriously transformed was their chief, a man named Kowea. And in his autobiography, John Patton tells about the time when Kowea knew that he was about to die. And he wanted to say goodbye 
to John Patton, the man who had led him to Christ. And Kawia said to him, farewell, Missy. Called him Missy. It was short for missionary. Farewell, Missy. I am very near death now. We will meet again in Jesus and with Jesus. And Patton writes about him. Thus died a man who had been a cannibal chief, but by the grace of God and the love of Jesus changed, transformed into a character of light and beauty. Never underestimate the power of the gospel to transform lives, to bring restoration to that which is broken. And we see three beautiful examples of that here in this text. What do we see here? First of all, we see Jesus restoring a leper. Restoring a leper. Look at verse 12. The Bible says, while he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had leprosy all over him. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So let's kind of set the stage of what's going on here. Last week, at the beginning of chapter 5, we saw that Jesus was in Capernaum. And we talked about the fact that Capernaum was sort of like a home base of operations for Jesus in Galilee. But Jesus has no intention of staying on base. He intends to branch out from that home base to reach other towns in Galilee. So that's what's happening now. Jesus is in an, another town, and, and you know, even in a world like, like the first century world, uh, without the internet and, and without even newspapers, when someone was doing the kinds of things that Jesus was doing, that news is not going to be contained. It's going to get around. And somehow, one of the people who has heard about the things that Jesus was doing was this pitiful leper. And this was an especially tragic, heartbreaking case of leprosy. It says here in verse 12 that this man had leprosy all over him. Lepers were outcast in this society. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that there was a fear that if someone inadvertently touched a leper, that they would become ceremonially unclean and they would have to go through all kinds of purification rites to re-enter society. And so whenever a leper came around a crowd of people, they had to call out, unclean, unclean, to warn people lest people inadvertently touch them. And so they, they lived as outcasts. There was a fear that, there, that this terrible skin condition was contagious. And so there was much fear that was involved as well. Ryan White was a boy who was born in, in Kokomo, Indiana. He was born with hemophilia. And so Ryan had to have a series of blood transfusions as a child. In December of 1984, Ryan White was diagnosed with AIDS. It was the early days of the AIDS epidemic. He was kept in virtual isolation. But just like you know, any boy 
that age, there came a point when he told his mom, he said, I, I, I miss my friends, and I, I want to see them again, and I, I, I want to go to school. And when the decision was made for him to re-enter the school, the parents, many of the parents of the other students in the school rallied in protest against him, even though doctors knew, even at that point, that AIDS was not spread through casual contact. They didn't want their kids to even have casual contact with Ryan. On his first day back at school, 151 out of 360 students stayed home. Imagine the message that that would send to a 13-year-old. He's passed away now, but his mom, in reflecting on those days, says this, it was really bad. People were really cruel. People said that he had to have done something bad or wrong or he wouldn't have had it. It was God's punishment. We heard that a lot. Well, this man heard that a lot too because it was also assumed that if someone had leprosy that they surely had done something to deserve it. So in addition to the physical pain of the leprosy itself, there was the the psychic, emotional pain of being an outcast. But somehow, in his isolation, this man has heard of Jesus, heard of the miracles that he has performed in other towns, and he does what he's really not supposed to do. He comes out of his isolation, out of his leper colony, into the town around this crowd, and he falls down face down with his face in the dirt before Jesus and he begs him Lord if you are willing you can make me clean note here that it's not the ability of Jesus that's in question only the the willingness this man thinks would he be willing to heal someone like me Look at verse 13. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing. Be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. The great uh, British New Testament uh, scholar and and Greek scholar B.F. Westcott notes here that the word for touch means more than superficial contact. It could even be translated uh, that he, he laid hold of him. And, and, and Luke here really highlights the drama of this moment when he says, reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him. There would have been an audible gasp in the crowd when when Jesus did this when he touched him John Sutherland uh, works for the the police department in London and he gives a he gave a a, a TED talk in which he was he was he was talking about um, the way that police do their work and the, the way that they compile evidence and how every contact leaves a, a trace. 
In other words, every criminal leaves a trace behind him. One forensic expert put it this way, wherever he steps, whatever he touches, whatever he leaves, even unconsciously, will serve as a silent witness against him. Not only his fingerprints or his footprints, but his hair, the fibers from his clothes, the glass he breaks, the paint he scratches, the blood he deposits or collects. This is evidence that does not forget. But then Southern, Sutherland draws a beautiful connection to relationships, human relationships. He says every time two people come into contact with one another, an exchange takes place. Whether between lifelong friends or passing strangers, we encourage, we ignore, we hold out a hand, or we withdraw it. We walk towards or we walk away, we bless or we curse. And every single contact leaves a trace. The way that we treat and regard one another matters. It really matters. It really does. And so part of what is happening here in the touch is that Jesus is touching someone that society regarded as untouchable. And Jesus knows that this man has been for years without any normal human affection or contact. And so the touch is Jesus' compassionate way of saying, I love you, I'm with you. It's that. But it's more than that. There's a larger theological point that is being made here, which Kent Hughes powerfully points to. The touch of Christ's pure hand on the rotting leper is a parable of the incarnation and the cross. Jesus took on flesh, became sin for us, and gave us his purity. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus laid hold of our flesh. He touched us and healed us. Restoring a leper. Second, restoring a paralytic. Restoring a paralytic. Let's look at verses 18 and 19. Just then, some men came carrying on a stretcher a man who was paralyzed. They tried to bring him in and set him down before him. Since they could not find a way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on the stretcher through the roof tiles into the middle of the crowd before Jesus. So now Jesus is teaching in a home. A typical home in first century Galilee would hold about 50 people standing up. But on this occasion, you can better believe there were more. Because these people were packed into this house like sardines. In fact, they were not only packed into the house, they were jammed outside the house around the door. And here come these guys bringing on a stretcher 
yet another example of human brokenness. It's important to remember that when we see these miracles, and in particular these healings, that there are a couple of things going on. Uh, One is that Jesus is showing tender compassion for these people, and just healing, seeing people who are hurting and healing them. That's part of what's going on, but that's not all of it. Each of these miracles, each of these healings are signs. They are signs that, that God has come to restore his broken creation. It's important to remember that the world that God created, that we read about at the beginning of Genesis, the world which he pronounced to be very good, it was not a world that contained paralysis or leprosy or cancer. None of these things were a part of God's original creation, nor will they be a part of the new creation that Jesus will bring about when he returns. And so, each of these healings is like a sign on a micro level of what Jesus is going to do on a macro level when he returns and restores this entire broken creation. As J.R.R. Tolkien once said, on that day, everything sad is going to come untrue. And so these healings, each of them are signs that point to that day. Let's go back to this scene here. These guys approach the house. They probably try to get inside. It's impossible. People are tightly packed around the door. We don't know who they were. We don't know who these guys were that were carrying the stretcher. They could have been his brothers. They could have been close friends. We do know that they loved him very much because they were not going to take no for an answer. They were desperate to get him in front of Jesus. And when you're desperate, you get creative. Imagine that this was one of your loved ones. And you knew that if you could only get this person that you love so much, if you could only get them in front of Jesus, that they could be made well, you would not go away if you saw people crammed around a door. No. When we're desperate, we get creative. First century homes would have had an outside staircase going up to a flat roof. And so up the outside steps they go, carrying the stretcher, the roof would have been made out of timbers that were laid two or three feet apart. And in between the the timbers and on top of them, uh, there would have been uh, several inches, maybe even a foot. Of, of, of clay, dried clay, mud, lots of twigs and thorns and thistles and stuff like that woven between to, to minimize leakage. And they begin to dig. <laughs> they begin to dig a hole in the roof. Imagine being inside the room. You would have heard it before you ever saw it. You would have heard the scratching, you can imagine every face in the room just like looking up 
at the ceiling, at the scratching that's going on. They would have put the pieces of the puzzle together. How do you think they would have reacted? I think most people there were probably incredulous at the audacity of these people to, to be digging a hole in the roof. And then they probably would have been annoyed because surely pieces of dried mud began to, to fall down upon the crowd. But the whole time, I believe Jesus was sitting there with a smile on his face because he loved, he loved faith like this. When you read the Gospels, the thing that just delights the heart of Jesus is faith. Ah, oh, Jesus was sitting there with a smile. He was delighting that this was going on. Finally, they, they're, they're able to create a big enough space and they somehow rig up a, a way of, of lowering down the stretcher right in front of Jesus. But now, the story takes a turn. An, an unexpected twist. Because we expect Jesus to say, rise and walk. But he says something else. Verse 20. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. This is not what we expect as readers. And it was certainly not what the religious leaders who were there expected to hear. If you go back to verse 17, <clears throat> Luke notes here that on one of these days while he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and also from Jerusalem. So on this occasion, there is an unusually large contingent of religious leaders, Pharisees, scribes, Teachers of the law. Now we need to pause here and understand who these guys were. Because we're conditioned to think of them as the bad guys. I mean, when you think of the word Pharisee, it's almost like another word for, you know, uh, petty legalists and hypocrites and things like that. It's, it's taken on that meaning in our culture today. We think of them as the bad guys. It's important to understand that's not how they were viewed in the first century. They weren't viewed as the bad guys. They were viewed really as good guys. They were guys who, who took God's word seriously. And in the case of the scribes, they were, they were Pharisees who also were in charge of, of teaching God's law. And so the, these guys were looked upon as morally upstanding. Unlike the other religious party, the Sadducees, the Pharisees did not kowtow to the Romans that were occupying the country, and so they were also looked upon as, as very patriotic. And so, listen, this is, the, this is, the, this is the, the crowd that's going to worship. You know, they're, they're people who are, who are taking God's word seriously and trying to live morally upright lives. They're, they're theological conservatives. They're patriots. And we should be getting really uncomfortable right now. Because they were an awful lot like us. 
for their culture. But the people who were most drawn to the message of Jesus were not the religious insiders. It was the outsiders. It was the outcast. See this time and time again in the Gospels. Well, Jesus knows what they're thinking. <laughs> and it tells us here what they were thinking. Verse 21, it says, Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They begin to ask two questions inwardly. First of all, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? So blasphemy was, was a, that would be like a human being taking to oneself something that is reserved for God alone. And certainly the ultimate forgiveness of sin would fall into that category. That's God's prerogative. And so they weren't wrong in their assumption that that privilege ultimately belongs only to God. No, they were wrong in their assumption that Jesus was not God. <laughs> but he was, and he is, and he, he knew exactly what was going through their minds, verses 22 and 23, but perceiving their thoughts, Jesus replied to them, why are you thinking this in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Well, the easier thing to say would be to say your sins are forgiven. I mean, any religious nut could say that and there would be no empirical proof to to determine whether it was really true or not. But if you say get up and walk, and the person is still lying there, that's a problem. And so it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, but what if someone said your sins are forgiven and then backed it up with a display of supernatural divine power. What happens here? Verse 24. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. <laughs> Mic drop moment. Verses 25 and 26, immediately he got up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Then everyone was astounded, and they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with awe and said, we have seen incredible things today. Oh, what does this tell us about the identity of Jesus? You know, it's tempting in many contexts to minimize the divinity of Christ to minimize the fact that he was 100% God in addition to 100% man. It's tempting to do that in certain contexts on the mission field, certainly in an Islamic context, um, or in contexts where people do not affirm the, the Trinity. It's tempting to do that even in our own world, 
in certain sophisticated secular contexts. We, we want to sort of, sort of downplay the, the, the fact that Jesus was God. But friends, we can't improve on John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God was in that house that day, restoring a paralytic. Third, restoring a notorious sinner. Restoring a notorious sinner. Verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So Israel at this point is under Roman occupation, which was humiliating for them in and of itself. I mean, just remember who these people are. I mean, these are, these are God's elect, God's chosen people set apart for his glory. They had a glorious history. Kings like David and Solomon and great military victories and economic prosperity. And now they're under the domination, the occupation of these idol-worshiping pagans, the Romans. But on top of it, the Romans exacted exorbitant taxes, not to make things better in Israel, but, but to finance Caesar's empire. These taxes just were just the cherry on top of their humiliation as a people. And the Romans got locals to do their dirty work for them and to actually do the tax collecting. They would get Jews who were willing to essentially prostitute themselves and sell their souls for a buck to collect taxes for them. Levi was one of these tax collectors. I mean, if you were to think about uh, like a, a parallel in our culture today with the way that tax collectors were viewed in that culture, I mean, you would have to think of someone who is predatory, whether a sexual predator or, you know, um, a drug dealer perhaps, or maybe, and combine that with someone who is a, uh, like a double agent, like a spy that has turned on his own country, I mean, a, a traitor, I mean, that, this is the kind of parallel that you would think about. And oh, by the way, <laughs> The tax collectors were notorious for grifting on top of that and for extortion and for getting even more than what Rome demanded. That's how they, they got their own personal wealth. So just imagine how this guy is regarded. He has a lot of similarity in some ways to the leper because this guy is a social leper to be sure. I think Jesus has had prior contact with him. I, I don't believe that Jesus is just sort of walking up out of nowhere and saying, follow me. I, I, I strongly suspect there had been prior contact. I, I, think that this, I think that Levi has heard Jesus teach and that God has begun to do a work in his heart. I think when Jesus taught these crowds, there was Levi hanging out along the periphery. Probably not too many people close to him. 
But there he was. And Jesus had noticed him. Maybe noticed tears falling down his cheeks. God was doing something. God was softening his hard heart. He's not used to anybody talking to him. I suspect Jesus had sought him out. Before now, I suspect Jesus had taken notice of him and, 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 and come up and conversed with him about his soul. Nobody else cared about Levi's soul. The only thing they cared about as far as his soul was that he would die and go to hell. That was the, their attitude. But Jesus, I believe, had conversed with him about his soul and pointed the way to heaven. And God had begun to do a work in, 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 in Levi's heart, but now the decisive moment has come, as it must come for each of us. A decisive moment must come when we decide what we're going to do with Jesus. And Jesus approaches him on this day, and he says to him, follow me. And he doesn't just mean like, you know, follow me to lunch, or you know, follow me for a few days. No, he means follow me. Leave behind your life and enter a new life. Verse 28. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Leaving everything behind. Remember, this is a guy who loved money so much that he was willing to endure the hatred of his own community in order to get more of it. He loved money. He loved all the stuff that he had accumulated, all his ill-gotten gain, and he turns his back on all of it, leaves all of it behind to follow Jesus, but he does it joyfully, joyfully, because he knows in Jesus he has found a treasure. We sung it earlier, Jesus is the treasure. And Levi understands he's found it. Levi's like the guy in the parable that Jesus tells about. You remember the parable of Jesus, where Jesus tells about this guy, this guy who's out in the field, you know, and this, he's out there plowing in the field, and all of a sudden the plow just kind of strikes something hard in the earth. And so he goes around to the front of his plow, and he starts digging through the earth, and what does he find? He finds a chest there, knocks the dirt off the top of it, slowly opens it up, and there is gold and jewels just sparkling in the sun. And what does this man do in the parable? He, he, he covers it back over so no one sees. And then he goes out and he gets all of his possessions. Everything together. Everything that he owns. And he liquidates. He sells all of it in order to buy that field. Because he knows that if he has that field, there is treasure that is infinitely beyond anything that he ever possesses. Yeah, that was Levi. Levi knows that in Jesus, he's found a treasure that makes everything else just seem worthless. And so he joyfully leaves everything behind and he, he, he follows Jesus, and then he wants to show his love for Jesus somehow. So what does he do? Verses 20, 
uh, 29 and 30. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So having experienced the love of Jesus, Levi wants to show his love for Jesus. This is 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. And so Levi, having experienced this incredible transforming love of Jesus, he wants to show his love for Jesus. And so he throws this party this huge party in honor of Jesus. Jesus is a guest of honor. So he's got, Jesus is there, and, and Levi's invited all of the, the, the followers of Jesus, the disciples are there, and then who else does he invite? He invites his friends, and basically, oh, the only friends Levi had would have been other tax collectors, or kind of lowlifes. He invites them to come. Why? Because He's already doing what we have, all, have, have seen, what we saw last week, right? Jesus says when you follow him, he says he'll make us what? Fishers of men, fishers of people. We'll be catching people alive for life, not death. And so he's gone from being a collector of taxes to a collector of, of transformed lives. It's gone from being someone who is into taking from people to giving what is ultimate to people. And so Levi doesn't have to be formally trained in evangelism to do this. But he knows that his friends need Jesus and found people find people. When we're found by the love of Christ, there is a natural desire to share that and to find others. Found people find people. Levi's been found by the love of the Lord. He wants others to, to be found. So he invites his, his fellow tax collectors, his, his friends, which would have been kind of the, the, the people who were looked down upon uh, in that society. He invites them to come because he wants them to get around Jesus and the followers of Jesus. And that's not a bad idea for us. Right? When we have kind of gatherings, you know, whether it's a fellowship or something for people, for our Christian friends, hey, why not invite some other friends that aren't yet in Christ so that they can be around the people of God, be more exposed to the things of God and the gospel? So he, he throws this, this evangelistic <laughs> Jesus party and this goes over like a lead balloon with the religious crowd, with the religious leaders. They don't like it. They're like, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Because their strategy was withdrawal from these people. We want to keep away from these people. We don't want to any more be around them than we want to touch lepers. Keep our distance. We don't want anything to do with them. The strategy that Jesus advocates that we saw last week, the strategy that Levi is employing here is 
the exact opposite of that. You know, when we, when we think about why the church in America, for the most part, is so ineffective evangelistically, I believe one of the things that's at the heart of it is that lost people don't believe that we love them. And that's because in many cases we don't love them. And they can sense it. So what do they see us and hear us doing? Like they, 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 see, they see and hear us you know, putting them down and maybe yelling about them or at them or sort of waging a culture war against them or trying to gain political power against them. Let me tell you what they don't often experience. Christian people loving them, inviting them to a meal, sitting down and breaking bread with them, and being willing to listen and hear their story. Mm. Friends, this is a message for us today. Jesus knows what's going on. He knows the deal. And Jesus, in verses 31 and 32, Jesus replies to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And by saying this, he is not at all implying that the, that the religious leaders were in a healthy state. No, they were sick. Maybe the sickest of all, because they were sick, and they didn't realize they were sick. You see, you can be religious, but lost. You can be in the house of God, and around the things of God, and know the language, and your heart can be far from God. Friends, this is a, this is a text that should cause soul searching. This is a text that should bring humility to people like us to examine our own hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We pray that you would help us to see ourselves as we are. Great sinners in need of a great savior. We thank you that in spite of the depth of our sin, that as we sung earlier, that your mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. But Lord, help us to understand that it's not other people that are in need of your mercy, that it begins with us. 
We pray that you would humble us, that you would, you would, you would do a work on our prideful hearts that so often look down upon others, look down our nose at others, that think we are better than others, that think we somehow need less of your grace than others. Lord, this is a text that should change just how we view other people. It should even change the way that we view evangelism. Lord, help us to understand that that evangelism ultimately is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. We thank you that in your grace that you came to us in spite of our sin. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to go to others in love. Lord, help us to to go to people that others are not loving. And when lost people are around us, may they experience the loving touch of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. And you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.